There's no countdown. We're rolling. Hi. <laughs> After all these years, now suddenly there's no countdown? If you'd like a countdown, I could do it. It's a manual thing. You won't be seeing it on the computer or That's anything. That's okay. i just like to hear you count me in. Go ahead. Okay, in, in five. Not from five. Eight. No, no. Sep- three. Three. Two. I like it when you say one as You well. want to hear one as well? I, I know it's not the typical, but I like Let it. Let me start just over. Three. Two. One. Well, hello. Go right now. Uh, see? Now, oh, no, when too you much? say one, you stop, and oh. then I talk. Okay. Three, two, one. Hello, friends. It's episode number 367 of The Way I Heard It, which means Chuck has had roughly 367 chances to perfect what you just listened to, and still we're <laughs> workshopping it. A simple count in. One of these days, Mike, one of these days, I'm going to nail it. <laughs> Our guest nailed it today. Uh, his name is Neil McDonough. And if the name is familiar, it's probably because you've seen him on the TV or the big screen countless times. The name of the episode is The Luckiest Man on the Face of the Earth with Neil McDonough. And quick sidebar, the reason it's called that is, be well, you'll see momentarily why it's called that, because he really is, I think, and I don't think he would disagree. But we have a great conversation about Lou Gehrig, and we finally come to the conclusion that this is what the episode should be called. In the actual podcast, I ask his permission. I say, Neil, do you care if I call this the luckiest man alive? Uh-huh. And he says, absolutely, that's perfect. But earlier in the conversation, I think he said, the luckiest man in the world, when he was referring to Lou Gehrig's famous quote. And what I wrote down when you both said it at the end of the episode was, the luckiest man on earth. So we got a lot so, of to choose from. Right. So none of us are right. So what we did moments ago was Google it. And Lou Gehrig's exact words were, today, I feel like, or I believe. I consider myself. Today, I consider myself the, the luckiest, luckiest man, man on, the, on face the face of, of the earth. earth. Having said all that, you're going to love this conversation. This is an actor's actor. He's a terrific character actor, a method actor, maybe the most prolific villain working today. You've mm -hmm. seen him in a band of brothers and in Justified. Minority Report. Absolutely. I mean, it just goes on and on. He's done over 100 movies. I don't even know how much TV. He's probably best known for the two years or so he was blacklisted in Hollywood for refusing to kiss another woman on screen. Yeah. Only his wife. He kisses only his wife. Right. And so, you know, this is Hollywood, and that kind of limits you in a way. And so word got around, and people started to assume he was some kind of a religious zealot, which he's not. He's just a guy with principles, and there are many things he will do, but there's some things he won't. You have to admire that. Whether you're aligned with him spiritually or not, you have to admire that. And uh, it was really fun talking with him. He's got a new movie. Angel Studios has done it again. This one is called The Shift. And I watched it this morning on my cell phone on the beach, which was not ideal. That's a weird thing to do, dude. Dude, I had a lot going on, man. I had to get my steps you in. You somehow managed to get to the beach. <laughs> I, had, I had to prepare <laughs> for whatever this is. It's a great conversation with a great actor and a devoted husband and a great father for a while there, a really interesting child who grew up in a motel. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to hear all about it, and you're going to like him a lot. I consider him the luckiest man on the face of the earth, one of them anyway, and I think he does too. Neil McDonough, right after this. Do, 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 do. 
Hey guys, get a pen and a piece of paper and mark your calendars for February 28th through April 17th. That's the period of time in which we will be accepting applications for another round of work ethic scholarships. The MicroWorks Foundation has a million dollars that we're dying, just dying to give away. It is burning a metaphorical hole in my metaphorical pocket. If you want to learn a skill that's in demand, we would love to help pay the freight. We've also expanded this year into cosmetology and licensed practical nursing and computer information technology and veterinary technician, along with all the other skilled trades. The application process is a process, so I'm giving you plenty of heads up. People always wait to the last minute, and some people don't get through. Don't be among those people. Go to microworks.org slash scholarship starting on February 28th and get the process started. Microworks.org slash scholarship. McDonough, your wings are ready. McDonough, your wings are ready. <laughs> And your table. <laughs> For one, sir? Varsity Pizza back at Syracuse University. McDonough, your wings are ready. Old habits die hard, Neil. Was yeah. that like your first job or one of your first jobs? No, no. I love being at Syracuse. We had, a, I mean, what a great university it was and how much fun it was. But I do miss the food up there, the wings and the pizza yeah. and the people and everything about Syracuse. I just don't miss the snow so much. Boston boy, right? Boston boy. That's right. So how often do you get home and how much do you miss it? More than you could possibly imagine. You know, all my families, you know, they're still back there. All my best buddies are still back there. And I hadn't been back since my dad passed away a few years ago. And this summer, I went back to do a one-night show as Whitey Bulger. And it, Holy cow. Comedy? It, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, Mike, it was one of the most incredible nights of my life to play someone like that on stage. Mm -hmm. And we never rehearsed it. You know, they'd been rehearsing for weeks and I was busy doing a show. So I showed up that day and they say, uh, so are you ready? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Where are my spots? You're going to be there, 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 there. And no. we did the show and it was just seamless and standing ovation at the end. And at the end, to have half of my high school, it seemed, to be at the show. Yeah. And relatives and friends. You want to talk about being under the pressure cooker, but I love that stuff. You know, it's... Well, wait a minute. So this is a play and you got your lines cold. You haven't blocked. I had the lines for a couple of weeks, but I couldn't really go over them. And I had like monologues. Yeah. I couldn't really go over them, but because I was doing another show. But you know, when you get words that are written really well, and Casey Sherman, who I went to high school with, is just this incredible writer, and Dave Wedge, his partner. It just kind of flew off the tongue. I've never got to play a Boston character. Certainly no one like Whitey Bulger before. Right. It was fascinating. and. I got lost in the character. And then finally at the end, when the crowd was going crazy, it was just one of those nights there I am in front of Reve and all my relatives, my brother Bob and all my friends I grew up with. And it was just one of those awesome, awesome nights. Reve is your lovely wife of she 20, is. how many years? Uh, 23 years been together. We just celebrated last week our 20th. Congratulations. Thank you. Five kids? Five kids. Were they all in the audience as well for this thing? No, they were not going to see Dad play Whitey Bulger. <laughs> but why not, dude? You have yeah. Forrest Gumped your way into villainhood. Like, I don't know that anybody else right now can lay claim to that. And I want to get into that and a gajillion other things, but I have to commiserate for a moment because Chuck and I are from Baltimore, which isn't Boston. You know the pain of 70s baseball. Oh, oh my God. I mean, oh, you yes. know the pain. 
when I was in high school, we had this motel, and all the scouts from Cape League would stay at our motel every summer. It was great. But T-Bone Giordano was the head of scouting for the Orioles. So he would always get me, because Al Bunbury and I had the same shoe size. I'd be there at Barnstable High School playing for the Red Raiders, and I would have orange cleats and Bunbury's old gloves or all this kind of... And so there was this thing about the Orioles that I just adored as a kid. And I was like, why could you be an Orioles fan? You're in Boston. What are you talking about? There was no team. Jim well, Palmer, you know, I became a pitcher because of Palmer. I wore 22 because of Palmer wow. all through college because it was, that was the dude. And you could hit a baseball too. And you could hit a baseball, yeah. Was that the first sort of talent you realized you might have been blessed with? Yeah, I could hit a ball really well, but I, you know, I could hit slap shots really well too going up in Cape Cod. So it's, yeah. There was two things you were going to do growing up in Cape Cod. You were either going to be a sports junkie, like all my buddies, or you were going to do stupid stuff. And I saw a lot of my buddies doing the stupid stuff, and it made me realize that's probably not the best way to go through life or to start out of the <laughs> gates at 16, 17 years old. Fat, dumb, and stupid is no, no way to go through life, son. <laughs> yeah. But Fat, I didn't want to be that guy. Right, you know? right. And, and then when I was 16, I went on this religious retreat, this Catholic religious retreat, I was a smart-alecky kid who would use his rapier wit to just cut into kids in high school as a defense mechanism. Yeah. But then when I went off on this religious retreat, I was like, maybe I could use those talents for something a little more positive. And then all of a sudden, my grades went from very average to A's. They went from kind of giving up a little bit on sports to being so focused, to being a regular kid to the class president, and then class clown and most popular. Like All these things happened all because I had this amazing religious retreat called Echo when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Ever since then, it's, I've always had this really great relationship with God in that the kind of thing that always stuck in my head was that we're all God's kids. Mm. And if we're all God's kids, that makes us all brothers and sisters. And if we're all brothers and sisters, shouldn't we be rooting for each other a lot more than taking each other down? It was that seismic shift in the way I thought about things when I was 16 years old that kind of catapulted me into, oh, I can go on stage as and act on stage, and I really enjoy this, and people are listening to what I have to say. And then in politics, and you know, high school politics, and I thought maybe I'd go into the career of politics thereafter, and, and, and all just kind of funneled in from baseball, hockey, and theater to it just kept going, and then theater and just overtook it, and then all of a sudden movies came, and my first audition was Lou Gehrig in the Babe Ruth story, and I got it. And All right, now you're just... Annoying. It was so annoying. So I'm like, dude, how do you go on get just... It was my cousin, Liam Monahan, was opening up the Cape Cod Times and said, they're looking for Lou Gehrig in the Bay Bridge. There's an open casting call in Los Angeles next week. You should fly out to it. And I did, and I flew out to it. And there I was, and this young, confident idiot. I didn't want to read the sides because the sides, there wasn't much there. And I went into the room, and there was like a sea of producers. I said, have you guys heard Lou Gehrig's last speech in person? And they're like, no, we haven't. And oh. then I memorized it the night before. Like luckiest man on earth like speech. So I did the speech to him, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room, including me, because it's yeah. just, come on. Lou Gehrig was just, what a It's not just being. the words. It's the uniform. It's everything. It's the sold-out stadium. It's that moment in time. And not to belabor the point, Neil, but for a guy who comes to the conclusion that all the bipeds are brothers and sisters... Well, then it makes a certain amount of sense for a Boston guy to develop a weird affinity for the Baltimore Orioles. That's right. Because how do you know who to root for and against if we're all on the same basic team? So you can watch the sport from 
a polite distance and still give a damn. Right. Like, I haven't thought about this in years, but when Brooks Robinson died a couple months ago, you remember, I was on a plane. Sure. Yeah. And it hit me like a heavy, wet sponge right in the face. In a moment, it wasn't just sad, but I was just overwhelmed by the amount of real estate that guy occupied in my mind oh, yeah. as a boy who played third base. Oh, gosh. And, and I just immediately cast And for those my, out there who don't understand, Brooks Robinson is arguably, I'm not even sure it's arguably, right? it's not the greatest third baseman in history of baseball. It was arguable until he died. And then yeah. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I mean, right. sure, you can talk Mike Schmidt, sure, you George can go, Red, you, you, you of go, course, that's right. but, and it's not just There's one the, number five, it's not just the talent, it's his connection to that town at that time, which is very similar to what you're talking about with Gehrig. Right. So, yeah, Lunch pail. Right. When Kari Stremsky finally passes away, like my brothers and I, we celebrate his birthday on August 22nd. I don't think it's anybody else in the world. And it's the pride of who's the first one to text all the brothers at six o'clock in the morning. Happy as day. Right, right, right. You know, so, you know my oldest son, Morgan, talking about brainwashing, growing up in California, as he did, he had two t-shirts that he wore to bed from the time he was two to about six. One was a Larry Bird t-shirt. The other was a Carl Yastrzemski t-shirt, both of which are now hanging in my closet, which I just look at every day and just kind of giggle. This you know, is the, so weird. I've got number five hanging in my closet, too. Of course you do. I've got it. Of course you do. But why? Because if that's it, who we looked up to so much as kids. But, but why does it matter more with every passing year? Is it mortality? I think it's because our mortality. You know, we're getting older. We're like, what do you mean? How could our hero be gone? Right. That doesn't make any sense. Wait a second. That's rude. Then you look in the mirror. <laughs> Dang it. What happened? <laughs> How am I 57? I'm still nine years. But I, I literally still think I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. When, you know. My kids just laugh at me because... So is that state of mind, or do you think that's a product of the vocation you've chosen? Is that one of the benefits of I, being able to immerse yourself? I had this conversation with some of my kids' buddies the other day. I said, if you can figure out a way to never actually have to grow up, and you get to live in that make-believe world, in that fun world, go for it. Because I still don't think I've ever grown up. You know, Reve reminds me of that every day. <laughs> you know, I don't... It boggles my mind that I'm sitting on Mike Rowe's show oh, come on. talking about the villainy that I've had on screen for the last gazillion years and how blessed I am to have had this career. It's still, I don't like to look backwards. and That's why I don't look at any of my TV shows or movies unless I have to. Because it's just odd to me and I certainly don't go back and look at my own material. I'm always in the present moment. So that's interesting. Does it make you uncomfortable to watch it or do you not want it to bleed into your next portrayal? Bingo. I enjoy watching it. Like, I have to admit, you know, hadn't watched, I don't know how many episodes of Suits and uh, Arrow, Flash, Legends, The Hundred. Uh, how many movies from, uh, at this point for you? Oh, hundreds. I don't know. I don't know. A lot. I was in the makeup chair with the last movie, The Shift. And she says, do you know how many times you've died on screen? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like... 25, 30, and she's like, this will be your 63rd. <laughs> like, yes, it's got to be a record. But here I am sitting here talking uh, about this stuff. You know, I really want to go to Los Angeles to be a comedian. And they're like, you don't look funny. You look like a cop. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's right, I'll take it. Scariest comic ever. You, uh, you know, you were talking about before that, uh, you know, when you grow up, you want to be an actor. There's an old joke about the guy who goes to his dad and says, dad, when I grow up, I want to be an actor. And he says, you can't do both, son. Yeah. 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 But look. It's right back but to where so we true. started. You can't, I still want to be a kid. 
The well, mirror lies to me every day. <laughs> lies <laughs> to me. So there's that. Who said that? Do you know? Or is it just one of those old sayings? I think I heard it from uh, John Rhys Davies. The oh, actor yeah. John Rhys Davies. Sure. Yeah. Not Lou Gehrig? Not Lou Gehrig. No. That would have been amazing. Liv Ullman, maybe. Liv. Uh, <laughs> now, let's but, go back to Lou Gehrig for a second. Could you imagine your dad comes off the plane from Ireland, walks straight into the army office, said, make me an American, goes overseas for five years, gets a citizenship, goes back to Boston, becomes the most diehard Red Sox fan of all time. Like, this is his thing. We grew up in a motel. Every night the Red Sox game was on. Off season, he's listening to Red Sox reports. What do you Did, mean you grew up in a motel? My parents owned a motel in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Oh, they owned the motel. Yeah, it's a okay. small little mom and pop motel that six kids grew up in. And so, did you have like your own motel room, or was it all <laughs> yeah, separate? Yeah, you we lived had, in a motel room. Yeah, and we were basically cheap slave labor for you know. <laughs> I, it was my, a different time, a simpler time. I remember my first business lesson as a kid. I was probably three, and my dad <laughs> would give me the job of picking up cigarette butts in the parking lot. And as soon as I was done, he would give me a quarter. I would take that quarter every single time, because you had to earn it, sure. to go to the Coke machine and grab myself an ice cold Coke. And it wasn't until years later, I was like, oh, what a genius business transaction for my dad. He would have charged <laughs> somebody else $2, he charged me a quarter, then got the quarter back because I bought something that he had for sale. Brilliant. Genius. Brilliant, but also some pretty great parenting in terms of cause and effect. You're attaching value to the quarter. You're attaching value to the journey, to the work. Right. I mean, work ethic either develops oh. or it doesn't. You know, Charles Koch told me once that one of his first jobs was like cutting the lawn, sometimes like with a pocket knife, because his dad was just really wanted him to understand the mix of the delayed gratification and the futility and the honor and the dignity of doing a small task over and over again really well. How can you possibly hope to instill that unless you find some activity right. that you can really jam up your child's butt? You totally. <laughs> you, know? you know, I remember if I sat down in the chair in the kitchen for more than 30 seconds, my dad would just make me go do something. Go bring a refrigerator to 219. Go paint something. Go mow the lawn. Go do the thing. So my only out clause was there was a wall in front of the house, in front of the motel, that uh, I had... I, spray painted a little rectangle thing in there. And in the spring and summer, I'd be throwing fastballs into it all day long. In the wintertime, I'd be shooting pucks. And it's the only time he would let me stay and not do chores. So because of that, I would throw for hours into a wall. You know, pinpoint accuracy of just playing, going over my head, World Series games, going, you know, being in this dreamscape of where I am, always on the mound, putting the pressure on myself. I've got to make this 3-2 strike. How am I going to pitch right here to Craig Nettles? This is going to be a hard job. That's what went through my head as a kid. How much time did you spend in front of a mirror in that dream world, whether you're impersonating a rock star, which is my thing, or a baseball player, or, I mean, did you literally see your reflection as you were projecting yourself into these alternative universes? Which, by the way, you know where I'm going with this. Wow, interesting. I do remember looking into the mirror and trying to get my leg as high as Jim Palmer did. Over. Yes. Over and over and right. over and over and right. over. And look, how did he get the ball? How? All the way down to the dirt in the mound. Do you know the and mechanism you have to have to get that high, that elbow that high, that hip that high, and be so down below here to be able to catapult everything forward and throw a perfect strike? Well, the only thing harder than that is hitting it. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, hitting a major league fastball. Palmer hit everything for so long that that baseball looked like an aspirin yeah. coming out. Mm. And it's like, you're not hitting this. 
a jumpy ass. Yeah. Yes, phenomenal. He took my grandmother into the broadcast booth on her 92nd birthday. She threw out the first pitch. My grandmother fell and broke her hip when she was toward the end of her life in my parents' condo, and she was watching the Orioles play. And she got up to go get a drink during the break, and she stumbled and fell. In the kitchen was a telephone where she could have crawled to hit 911. But in the den was the ball game, and it was still on. She crawled back to the den. Oh, I love this woman. Watched the <laughs> end of the woman. game. Well, we all did, and when my mother heard the story, she wrote a letter to DeAngelos, I guess, and the Sun Papers published it. Yeah. And then they were like, this woman needs to throw out the first Oh, pitch. yeah, for sure. So again, baseball, hometowns. I mean, I have no agenda for this conversation, Neil, but you started it in Boston going back to do a play that you hadn't rehearsed in front of half your high school buddies. And that's the thing, man. When you said that, I immediately thought of the Lyric Opera House, which was the first place I ever performed of note. Awesome. And going back to Baltimore, mm -hmm five years ago to do a one-man show, and standing there where I auditioned for the Baltimore Opera in front of a sold-out house trying not to crap up my back. Right? Oh, because, yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. No pressure. You hear at the Wilbur Theater, I think it might be the oldest theater in, and they gave me the tour before. This is the oldest theater in America. This is where Brando broke out his first, you know, uh, waterfront performance and this and that. I'm like, thanks for the added pressure. Thank you for that. But there's something about, I think it was that kid standing in front of the mirror so many times, putting that pressure on myself in a mirror. Oh, I never really thought of it until now, Mike. Having to deliver or having your father standing in the window watching you. Never played catch with my dad once in my life. No. Except in my bachelor party, I'll tell you about that, which is pretty funny. Field of dreams must have been hard for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so my dad would just sit there in the window and just watch me. Throwing ball after ball, oh. after ball after ball after ball after ball. I think I just liked the pressure cooker more than most people did. I think my mom would make me, you know, someone would come in to look at a room and they say, hold on. And then they get me this, you know, six or seven year old chubby little freckled kid. And I would show people the room like, here's the room. It's two double beds, color TV, air conditioning. We just got HBO. Do you know what HBO is? Well, let me tell you about it. <laughs> so I could sell anything to anyone at a young age and my mom yeah. knew it. And yeah. I think putting me into those pressure situations as a kid just kind of made me really enjoy being in that situation. I'm a naturally shy person, but if you put me in front of a boatload of people with a script, I don't have to be Neil McDonough. I can be anybody I darn well please, and no one can judge me on it. You can judge me on being Neil McDonough, you can whatever, but you can't judge me when I'm acting. It's this weird thing, so I remember doing 88 minutes, and this I don't know why it's always in my brain, and I was strapped to a gurney because I was about to be injected because I killed... Of course people. you did. Of course I did. You're Neil McDonough. And there's Al Pacino staring at me because <laughs> he grilled me and he's the one who put me in jail. And they had me all hooked up and I could feel you know, how I was nervous getting into the scene or it's like, okay, get the thought process. And all of a sudden I get in, they strap the blood pressure thing to me and you know, I'm looking at the blood pressure. I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty hot right now. All of a sudden I ease into the scene and the scene starts. And the scene's over. And I look at the monitor. And it says 58. It's like, wow. 58 beats per minute when it was just 88 or whatever it was. 
it's being in that pressure situation that I really, I guess, thrive in. It's a crucible, Neil. I mean, yeah. gold is tempered in fire. Yep. And that's right. Five. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Just a quick reminder that Noble Tennessee Whiskey is delicious, and every time you buy a bottle online, it benefits the MicroWorks Foundation. Carl Noble was my granddad, and uh, Dirty Jobs and the foundation that I run today are both a tribute to him. We do all sorts of things to raise money for that foundation, including offering you some of the finest Tennessee whiskey ever distilled. Pretty exciting to watch this thing grow. We're in a couple dozen states now, another dozen on the horizon. But if you live in one of the enlightened states that currently allows me to ship this excellent Tennessee whiskey, please go to noblespirits.com and see what's available. We have a delicious trio. We got a quadrigal. We got the rye, we got the rickhouse, we got the original juice, we got the barrel strength. It's all there. Check it out at noblespirits.com. Soon may the nobleman come. Soon may the nobleman come to bring a bottle for everyone. One day when the waiting is done, we'll take a drink and go. Could you imagine that same kid coming home after playing Lou Gehrig with his 27 hat, jacket, and shirt on and walking into the Rainbow Motel office? seeing my dad and my four brothers, and they beat me to a pulp. You will not, I don't care if you're starring, you're not wearing Yankee stuff in our house. <laughs> right. They That's... threw it out the window, they're punching me, laughing at me the whole time, but it was a 50-50. 50-50 said, don't wear that in the house. The other half was, we gotta bust you a little bit because you know, that's our job. But is it like that for you at this point as an actor, after a role, is it as simple as taking off the uniform and putting it down? and walking Ooh. away from it, because I know, I mean, I don't know, but you strike me as a guy who goes all in. I mean, there is the method. There are lots of methods. Lots of methods, yeah. But what is yours, and how do you get it off of you? Which is why I don't watch my stuff. You know, I like watching, like I was saying, I watched Eisenhower when I did American Horror Story, because I just want to see what it looked like. And I hadn't watched myself on screen in a long time. A long time. And Reve said, let's just look at it for a second. And I looked at it, and within 10 seconds, I got lost. I wasn't watching me. I was watching Eisenhower because my thought process, that's why I can't watch Band of Brothers because I'll just get so emotional so fast. Remote Who drop. doesn't? Right. Because it just brings you back to that as a method actor with some other techniques that have evolved with you know, as time progressed. It's hard because I call it puking on a canvas. When I'm really gearing up, I'm puking everything onto a canvas and letting everything out and you can judge as much as you want or say, this is just me and I'm going to throw it all out there. But then figuring out how to just puking on the canvas, how to mold it correctly to be a really a performance that's kind of just spot on, instinctual, but like kind of spot on, knowing the techniques in front of a lens. It's exhausting. You know, everyone says, you make it look so easy. Hmm. I'm like, well, I'll sit on set and I won't say a whole lot. I always have this kind of placid look on my face, but what's going through my brain and my soul at that time is just people would think, if I told you the thoughts that go through my head for some of my characters, you'd think, wow, you need to have a, a jacket on because you're, you're, you're crazy. You went to there? You went there. Yeah, I went there. So it's funny, when I play the good guys like Buck Compton yeah. or the Warrant series as Westerns or this next film, you know, we'll talk about the shift of having to play villains. And Is that the... Promo you showed me? That's a different film. That's, that thing looks amazing. That looks, yeah, Black Spartans is going to be, yeah. we'll get to that. But 
But it's the good guys that's really hard to slough off because then I'm really <laughs> imagining in my real life world if this thing happened to someone you loved. Where it's the villain, you're like, ha ha, this is funny. How is that funny? Well, it's funny to me in this situation. And the more I play with that stuff, the more scary it becomes. I love jumping into a character as a villain where you think, oh, this dude's cool. He's my next door neighbor. I yeah. like this. Uh, that was odd. Ooh, well, that was even odder. Oh, he's that guy. So those ones are more kind of fun, like Justified. or Yes. Uh, you play Robert Quarles, and he's so out of control, nuts, that when we're on set, it's kind of hysterical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one day, there's one scene, Reve was there, where I'm blowing Oxycontin smoke up a uh, double barrel shotgun into a prostitute's mouth. You know, <laughs> honey, get in here. And, and, <laughs> You're not going to believe and, this. And then right after that, there's a scene where I'm naked in my office packing up stuff. And it's, <laughs> it's just absurd. <laughs> and I'm walking into the bathroom and there's a young man strapped to a toilet. Mm-hmm. And Reve's on There's our title, by the way. Go ahead and jot that down. And there's a young man strapped to a toilet with Gil McDonough. Graham gave him my shot back after He threw you a lifeline, man. He threw me a lifeline. I would not be here today if it weren't for Graham Yost. Sidebar. You were basically blackballed for two years. You don't kiss other women on camera. You're not going to do a sex scene. Word got out. It didn't get out. You informed the industry. And Oh, I tried to keep it all quiet. They were like... Yeah, but you reaped the whirlwind. That's right. So you went from respectable working actor to religious zealot to unemployed you lost stuff man lost everything, everything. <laughs> you lost the mercedes lost the house you lost the house lost the houses yes lost the houses so two years go by you're in the wilderness this is new testament stuff and you're drinking <clears throat> and you're drinking by the way you haven't had a drink in what eight years yeah Honestly, is this distracting? That's my grandfather's whiskey over there. I pour it, that for everyone. I love it's, it's, seeing I mean, people get hammered. It's I love just, it. It's just staring <laughs> at I, I you. I love watching people fall down at parties. I'm like, there we go. Wait a minute. Yeah, I think about eight minutes. Come on, boys, watch. He's about to fall. There's another great. party trick. Uh, who invited Stronger? Neil? Sure, no who problem. Who invited Neil? But I mean, that to me is uh, operatic, right? Like to have, because if you knew that you were going to be in the wasteland for two years, you couldn't get arrested in this town for two years. If you knew it was going to be that for two years, you could do that standing on your head. But of course you don't know. Don't. You don't know when, if it's ever going to end. That's it. It's like the traffic jam, right? Three hours in, you're like, okay, this is how we die. Honey, kids, I hate to say it, but we're going to eat each other That's at right. some point. <laughs> this is going to be very dark, right? But out of nowhere, Graham Yost, who's one of the best. And brothers. Boomtown. He wrote me like two of my favorite roles of all time. And then he just went, you know, it was. The phone rings. Is it a landline? The phone rings while I'm on my knees. And I just said to God, why have you forgotten about me? Ooh. And then I sobbed. I finally hit the spot of how could I dare say this to him who's given me so much. Yeah, I'm not working. Yeah, I lost my money. Yeah, I lost my you know, Job got beaten up. A lot of people get beaten up in life. Everyone gets beaten up in life. No one's that special. Everyone's going to get kicked hard in the nuts. And what are you going to do to get up off of that? And I was struggling. I couldn't figure out how to get off the mat. And then as soon as I was on my knees sobbing and realizing what a just selfish person I'd become, 
blaming it all on that one instance, blaming that person who fired me on the show. And, and, and I've often thought I need to write that person a letter and say, thanks. Yeah, thanks a million for doing what you did. And by the way, if I recall, it was Echo. You were 16. The scales fell from your eyes like Paul on the road to Sarsis, I think it was. Damascus. Right? Damascus. Whatever it was. I, said, I told you, Chuck, don't ever correct me on the podcast. Right? But anyway, it was a big moment. Replacing Chuck in next week's episode. <laughs> what I'm getting at is, is there a haughtiness that can sometimes follow a conversion where you see the light and it's like, that's it. I got it now. And you start living a little bigger and a little bolder. And then all of a sudden, a curveball, if we want to go back to baseball. I didn't go out to Hollywood to become famous. I came out to Hollywood to be a performer, right? And I think during that time after Band of Brothers and then Walking Tall and Housewives and all these other shows, it was getting so easy that I think that maybe <laughs> I was taking it for granted. And I think this is the lesson in that I wasn't working as hard as I should have with the gift that he gave me. Yeah, I'm a great actor. Great. That does not make me special. I can't not pound, this town. I can't pound a nail. I can barely sing and dance, but man, I can act as Rivet always says. Yeah. And maybe I thought that specialness was actually special. <laughs> right? <laughs> that, I, that I was special. Yeah. And I think maybe he just said, you know, let's get you back to reality here. I'm going to make you squirm for a while and make you realize that I gave you an amazing gift. Don't take it for granted. Well, and don't use it. Well, early you said, I mean, I, I want to use my powers for good, right? So if acting is a talent and many people in this town are blessed with it, why are so many people blessed with that talent so profoundly and irrevocably screwed up? <laughs> Fame messes with you. Yeah, right. You know, here, here's a boatload of money. And every joke that you tell in a room, everyone's <laughs> going to be laughing. Right. Whether you're funny or not. I used to not. tell really dumb jokes on right. purpose to see how much people would laugh. Hey, he's laughing. That's fine. Yeah. Gosh, maybe I'm getting, and you know, and Reveille always says, you're just famous enough. Don't mess that up. Don't mess that up. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I'm so fortunate to have the clarity of mind, especially with late. I mean, you look at the last eight years of my life, you know, being there for the kids so much more, focusing on being a great dad, focusing on coaching their teams, focusing on being the best husband I can be for Reve, focus I can be the best actor I can be for the audiences, focusing on how I can be the best me for him. I wouldn't have had that clarity. Was it hard to give up alcohol? Yeah, it's not easy to give up alcohol as being an Irish guy. I'm not even sure it's permissible. Right, where everyone's throwing <laughs> you drinks in Hollywood. Here, here, have another one, have another one. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, okay, okay. And then when you take that stance and say, no, I'm done. You become a threat to them. Oh my gosh. By the yeah. way. How many friends I lost because, right. oh. Not because you're boring. Not because, ah, I have more the... fun at parties now than I did then because I can right. have an actual conversation. What did I just say? I can't remember what I was saying. I was going to drink. Yeah. That's an ugly dude. I didn't know how much I disliked that guy until I had to face him in the mirror. You know, I couldn't get that Jim Palmer kick anymore. You know, I was 25 pounds overweight. I was, you know, just kind of, everything was so easy. And then it happened. And then it still took me a little while to figure out, all right, I'm back-ish. How do I get into the next gear? And it was Reve when she said, it's time. you got to stop now. In a profession where there's so many 
beginnings, middles, and endings. It seems like if you don't have a larger narrative to put over top of all of it, all you're going to do is get yanked back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, project to project to project to project right. to project. When I watch Band of Brothers, how many times have you seen it? Oh, I've I mean, seen it at least three times. Yeah, I watched it with my brother. I made my brother yeah, watch it. Yeah, I watched it. it with my dad. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I can't say anything you haven't heard about this thing, Neil. It's a remote drop, which is a pain in the ass because it's not a movie. It's a commitment. It's like, it's wait, this is like yeah. eight episodes or nine or whatever it is. No matter where it is, I'm going to watch it to the end. I thought, I swear this is true, I consciously thought the last time I watched it, what it must feel like to be any of the people in it, including you, to know that you're impacting people like that. It's like when Jim Palmer lets go of the ball, there's not a damn thing he can do about what happens next. No. Stramski is liable to hit it 430 yep. feet. Yep. Nothing to be done. So your work is done. You've puked up on the canvas. You've Thank done you. your best. And now you get to sit back and see what the ball does. I know you said you don't watch yourself a lot, but I got to ask, man, what, that, that must feel awfully good to know that you left that kind of mark on that many people. I haven't watched Band of Brothers since it came out. Because I just can't. If I hear the music, da, na, 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 break out the Kleenex. Because I go to all the thoughts immediately. That wasn't 23 years ago. It couldn't have been. Because that was yesterday that I was on the field. And getting to know Buck Compton, it became like another dad to me. Uh, Didn't you meet your wife? I met my wife doing Band Brothers. Mm -hmm. All those guys are still my best pals. There I is, love that. There isn't a production that Reve and I make now that doesn't have at least one other Band of Brother in the cast. Or in the crew. Or whatever the case is. And... And so last week, Morgan, our oldest son, is taking World War II as uh, his history class for, at his school. And they're studying Band of Brothers. And they asked me to go in and speak about Band of Brothers. I was like, oh, I can't speak about Band of Brothers. Because <laughs> more than 30 seconds, if I start talking about Buck, I just get weepy. And two days before I went into the, the thing, um, Morgan had a golf tournament, so we couldn't go to school. Oops, that just leaked out, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody listens to this. Uh, he says, Dad, I was supposed to be in class today, and they were watching episode seven, which is the episode where I have my mental breakdown. And he says, do you mind if, can we watch it, me and you tonight? Like, oh, yeah, of course we can. And I sat there next to Morgan, the blessings upon blessings that were bestowed on me because of that show is just, I can't even fathom. So Wait. I'm sitting there watching the show and, and tears are running down. My, I'm just sitting like this and tears just like, I can't, uh, this is just, and I'm looking over at him and there's tears in his eyes as he sees his dad watching himself and this, and he finally got it. He's like, oh, now I understand what Buck means to you. And it was just one of those moments that I'll never forget. Luckiest man on earth. Yep, luckiest man on earth. Back to Gehrig. Sooner or later, it all comes back to Gehrig. It all comes back to Gehrig. It's you know what killed me in that man. I mean, why we fight is one of the best segments. I you know I think that's the episode. But there's a Chuck knows this story because I we've actually I actually wrote about it. It's just a a seemingly inconsequential moment, but Spielberg gets those guys to play that quartet, right? And when Ron just walks out, 
I think the line is the crowds clean up pretty good, you know, and then somebody says something about um, Mozart, little Mozart. Yeah. And he says, that's not Mozart, that's Beethoven. I don't know why that thing haunts me the way it does. But it does. It's a combination of the music, obviously the delivery, but it's just such a gentle correction from a world-weary guy. In that moment, it's like, wow, that generation is going to have a weight to carry for a long, long time. And your old man was, That's right. was a part of it. So I was blessed uh, on Veterans Day this year to be able to speak at our school. And there was about 3,000 people in attendance and probably 50 vets on stage from World War II to now. There I was, I was a keynote speaker, and they didn't tell me at the school that my five kids were based on five kids were going to introduce dad. And I was like, really? You're going to do this to me? And to have all five of my kids say just like the most amazing things about their mom and dad, and then I get up on stage, and then to speak to veterans who've given their lives so all of we could have the democracies and the freedoms and all the great things and that we have to this day was just one of those moments of, my gosh. It was funny, Buck Compton, to, <laughs> at his funeral, for years he would press me. He's like, you got to come out of the political closet. You just got to tell everyone you're a Republican. I'm like, I can't. I can't do that in Hollywood. They'll, look at, they'll just crucify him if I do it. And he goes, just, you got to admit it one day. You got to admit it. So I told the story uh, in front of everyone and the veterans are there. And I said, there I was in front of, I don't know, a couple thousand people at Buck's funeral in Washington. I said, uh, you, forgive me, everyone. This is going to sound like an AA meeting, but I have to say this for Buck. Hello, my name is Neil McDonough, and I'm a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> and the place Hi, Neil. just <laughs> erupted. And I could feel Buck's coughing, just saying, yeah, you finally did it, kid. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, what did, that, what did it feel like for you? I mean, aside from, I mean, what a great moment and a fun moment. Yeah, it was fun. But did you feel lighter? When you admit truths, you always feel lighter, don't you? And you should never be ashamed of how you feel about stuff. And that's the great thing about our country. We can talk about things freely and how we really feel. And hopefully people have the wherewithal to not get offended or upset or angry or point fingers. And, you know, the divisiveness of what's become the political landscape is just, it's, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. Like I tell my kids, you may not like a politician's message or some of the things that they have to say or what they stand for because of their party, but that doesn't make them a bad person. You know, what people say about you may not agree with the president on a lot of things, but he's still our president. You may not agree with your local officials, but we elected them. They're still, and whether you voted for them or not, they're still your elected officials. I was listening to Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner. 100 years. Yeah, unbelievable. And he's saying, what's wrong with America now? Is it greed? And he goes, it's not greed. Greed isn't the worst thing in the world. It's envy. <laughs> if you agreed for your wife, greed for your family, greed for you want to you know, do the right thing. That's one thing. But when you envy other people, you know, even in, in right there in the Ten Commandments, don't covet other neighbors' goods or wives or any of that stuff. But once you start doing that, it's a cycle that it's hard to break. And I think we're going through that cycle right now where everyone is just pointing fingers at everyone else instead of holding themselves accountable for not being great at certain things or not trying to be the best version of themselves. Well, you had a front row seat to that. You're a famous drunk in the life of the party, and then one day you walk into the party and no, not for me. And that becomes a threat. Yeah. And that's, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot in a lot of different ways because uh, 
we wind up resenting in many cases the very things we rely upon the most. And somehow or other, envy's wrapped wow. up in all that. Wow, that's pretty good. Hey, here's a bit of uh, logic for you to try on. If you'd like to see more companies making clothing in the United States of America, you know what you got to do? You've got to buy some clothing from the companies who are already making their stuff in these United States. It's simple. American Giant has been making great clothes here. Completely here, by the way. Not that fancy mumbo-jumbo where they're like, oh, yes, it's uh, constructed in the United States with fabric imported from Malaysia or some nonsense. American Giant grows their own cotton, they control their own supply chain, and they make great hoodies and T-shirts and jeans. And look, I'll tell you straight up, it's not the cheapest garment you're ever going to buy, but it's going to last a lifetime. They don't skip on the quality. They don't take shortcuts. And I'm proud to speak on their behalf. You'll love their stuff. Save 20% right now at American-Giant.com slash Mike. American-Giant.com slash Mike. Use code Mike. Get 20% off your first order. American-Giant.com slash Mike. American Giant, American made. American Giant, American made. Well, look, I didn't make it up. I just looked around and I see what happens in our workforce. I see how frustrated people get. You flick the switch and the light doesn't come on. It's not just an inconvenience. It's an outrage. How can this not be coming on? I flushed the toilet. How, why is my crap still in there? Something is seriously wrong in the universe. Somebody needs to fix this stat. Right. The longer that feeling goes on, the more profound it gets. So when the plumber finally shows up and the electrician finally appears, you're not grateful to see them. You're pissed off that it took so long. That's what right. What is the fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it? So how do we get to that when we had, you know, my dad's generation, who wouldn't complain about anything who would just fix it? Mm. Well, this in part. Oh, that's the worst. That's, that's instant that's, gratification. That's the worst thing. Instant gratification. We've become a very impatient people, I think. But look, let me shift to shift. Every single thing we've talked about so far is in this movie you've just done, including the culmination of all villainhood, no matter how you define it. This is it. You're never going to play a bigger villain, right? From Whitey to Lucifer in six months. Old scratch, brother. I mean, I mean it's a heck of a thing. It's all done. I'm out. Chop, chop. I'm about to see it. So Angel Studios has done it again. Yeah. Um, we talked to Ballard. He came on here not long after Sound of Freedom. And I was interested in the movie, but I was also very interested in understanding how that movie got made. And so the role, man, what a fun role for you. But right before we started rolling, I said to you, it feels like it's about to tip. It feels like movies are about to be made in a completely different way. One is a thing. Two is a pattern. Three is a trend. These guys are doing something, and you seem to be up to your eyeballs in it. So what the heck is happening? Well, they're doing things differently. And instead of the same system that seems to be broken somehow, in some ways. In some ways, it's working great. Look, Hollywood makes a lot of dark, crazy stuff, and I'm guilty of being part of a lot of it, for sure. I had to make a living. I had to provide for five kids. So I had to be the villain of villains. That was my job. No good guys without bad ones, by the it, way. That's a very true. And the worse the villain is, the better the good guy is. Yep. So that's how I would always go after my characters. It's pretty funny you say that. 
But what Angel Studios is doing by crowdfunding and building, look, we had 6,000 people invest in the shift. <laughs> and every single name was on the screen at the end. The names of the investors was longer than the film. <laughs> it just kept going and going and going. And it was just, so basically, if you have a project, you put it on the guild, if it gets 50% approval rating, then it starts going to crowdfunding. And when they get to a certain amount, the Angel Accelerator Fund comes in and matches it and they make the film. Who in their right mind would do that? Smart people who care about their customers. Mm -hmm. you know, that was the other thing that Charlie Munger was saying also. Is how do you make so much money? Because you have to figure out who your customers are. Angel's figuring out who their customers are. And I'm so fortunate to be part of the system. We just, Ravan and I just have this now, this new first look deal with Angel. So we have The Shift, which just came out, uh, Homestead, which we co-produced. We just finished uh, part one of that. Black Spartans is this film, the trail that I just showed you yeah. that uh, is going to go through them. And then we have The Last Rodeo, which I am just so proud of that. Look, Ravan and I started, our first film was a half million dollars. Hmm. Our dear friend Willie Jackson, who we called after, uh, we said, we're doing another one at 1 1.5. You want in? He goes, yeah. And so he helped invest and got us rolling on that one. So then the next one was $3 million. Then the next one was another on three million with a warrant that we produced, and then Black Spartans we got up to five million, and then the last rodeo now we're up to eight million, and John Avnet is directing it. Great cast we're assembling, and I wrote it and, and starring in it. And my first on-screen kiss is going to happen in this film, because in the story I have flashbacks to my wife who oh. passed away fifteen years ago. <laughs> so your wife's so my wife is going to be my wife. <laughs> Reve is going to be in her first starring role. They're very short little mm -hmm. flashbacks for moments of her staring into the camera of just waking my character up. And then at one point, in the, about three quarters of the way through the film, as she's dying of cancer, I lift her up out of her wheelchair and we dance. And that's when I kiss her for the first time. I'm famous for one take. You're a one take guy. I've read that. This is going to be like 30 takes. <laughs> I don't feel like we have it yet. We did another day. Back to one, everybody. Give me one more. <laughs> and John Avnet already knows. John Avnet directed Fried Green Tomatoes and tons of movies and TV yeah. shows, Justified. And, so we're just so blessed. And then this other film that we wrote called The Wicked and the Righteous. It's Cain and Abel in the West that we talked to Jim Caviezel about playing mm -hmm. my evil brother in it. Uh, and this is all through Angel. And it's because of their fan base. If they don't like it, they're not going to vote it through. Well, you know what, man? People are pissed off. They're underserved. There's a giant underserved community who wants a certain kind of content, but they don't want the saccharine sweet... Not everybody needs to burst in a song. It's not sunshine and roses, right? It's got to, there's got to be hope. There's got to be some kind of redemption. But along the way, it's got to feel like life. It's yeah. got to hurt. Yeah. Right? And so they seem to have gotten that memo. Yeah, for sure. And you're, I think. And that's our wheelhouse. <laughs> I like to write or act in the films that are hope in the face of despair. But you got to have despair. You got to have the despair first. Because we've all been dragged through torture in life. Every single one of us. There isn't one who hasn't. And if you don't write to that, then it's, to me, it's not really that truthful. When I look at John Wayne's last performances, you know, from The Shootist, Shootist to The Cowboys, they're two of my favorite performances because you saw John Wayne who has gone through everything in his life. And The Cowboys, to me, is kind of like a perfect film. And to stand up for one last time against Bruce Dern's. Which, to our earlier point, and not to say the same thing in a slightly different way, but you take Bruce Dern out of that movie. Mr. Anderson. Gosh, it was so good because he was so despicable. You hated him so much. I would put you with great respect <laughs> in that category. He made Mr. Anderson 
Mr. Anderson. And the sweetest man off camera. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You know, it's funny. We villains of this tight club of villainy are generally the nicest, goofiest guys who all think, how the heck did I end up being the villain? Because you guys get paid to puke out all the poison every year or so onto the canvas. You get to get it all out of your... All of it. Out of your thing. All of it. It's harder to get the good guy behind you. It's almost impossible. You never do. Because the audience remembers and they see you, they want more of that good guy. I mean, you've got to kind of live up there all the time. Right. Must be exhausting. I can't imagine what it was like to be Harrison Ford. Right. To have to be the good guy. You know, he was clever in in having his good guys still a little smart-alecky and a little shifty and like, you know, living in the gray area as the hero. That was a genius on his part. He infused such fun into his heroes, unlike anybody else. But if you're just playing... Playing goody two-shoes, good guy, doesn't make any sense to me. Or playing over-the-top, snidely whiplash villain doesn't make That's any sense. That's right. You can't be Dudley Do-Right, and you can't be snidely whiplash. You can't. Which is why the benefactor mm. is such a great moniker, right? You're not the devil. You're not old Scratch. You're not Beelzebub. You're not Lucifer. You're all those things. But in this movie, you're the benefactor. And gosh, I love when a metaphor comes together. But earlier, we were talking about the different reflections you experience when you look at your own self in a mirror. And this movie is really that. I mean, it's sliding doors meets minority report in a way, yeah. right? And so we don't just have the devil. We have the devil's influence on many, many dimensions and universes and different realities and possibilities. So uh, it's sci-fi meets theology, and I don't know that I've seen that before. Well, I, I don't think we've... And it literally just dawned on me, as you said it right now, to, like Minority Report, you take Max von Sydow, who's the mm-hmm. villain of the piece. You <sighs> think he's this sweet, great guy for the first half of the film, and then, oh, the difference, which I've never really seen, I don't think, in a, in a, in a real villain villain, like the benefactor. You know he's a villain immediately. And when you know he's the devil, and he's sucking you in, as the character did, you're like, well... Kevin, why don't you just give over? I mean, dude, you could have any Lambo you want. You could have any how you could have anything you want in the world. Right. I mean, that's easy. That's a no-brainer. This guy seems cool. Mm-hmm. Go play with this guy. And he doesn't. And then you see the benefactor start to get impatient, become this impetuous eight-year-old boy who starts getting really, no, you're gonna play by my Right, right, right. I sat there and watched it. And there's my five kids, and here's Reve next to me, and they're five kids, and I'm, I'm just watching them, and they're all like, the whole time in the movie. I was like, wow, we're making a movie that the whole family can watch and learn from at the same time. That was, again, one of those awesome moments of my life that they get to see Dad do what he does really well in a film that's a really good film. Beautifully shot. Oh, Beautiful yeah. Beautifully shot. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what that part of my brain was expecting. I guess, you know, sometimes your expectations get lowered when you're like, well, this is a very important film. This is going to be a religious blah, 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 blah. So somehow or another, there's going to be some compromises. But right. it's beautiful. It's a great script. I'll tell you, the first five minutes, I loved. I'm suspicious of montages as a rule. I think they're lazy. Lazy. Yeah, yeah they are. Generally are. This was about the most efficient use to see a couple fall in love the moment they meet. And it was really artfully done. I was struck by that. And a lot of other moments 
in it too. If you don't get nominated for something in this thing, you know, there's no justice in this town, but I hate to tell it to you, but there's no justice in this town. <laughs> yeah, don't hold your breath. You got enough trophies? If you do it for trophies, get out. I do it because I love acting. It's my, you know, there's no place on the world that I'm probably as comfortable as I am in front of a camera, which is just bizarre if you really think about it. Mm. Or on stage or whatever. It's going back to the benefactor. I'm, at first I said no to doing the benefactor because I'm like, dude, I can't play the devil. That's just, I'm not going that far. And then Ravey and I had a long conversation. We prayed about it. So we were like, well, you're probably the best villain in Hollywood. You probably have the best relationship with God of those guys. You kind of have to. If you come out really slimy and weird and it just won't work and these people really want you to do it. And don't you always say if someone asks you to do it, you just do it? And that's how I've kind of pride in my career. So if it's an infomercial to a studio film, to an independent thing, to TV, to whatever, I'll just do it. If you ask me, I'm going to do it basically because I think it's the right thing to do. It's goodwill, right? Yep. And then I can't pinhole me as that guy. People know me as being a really great actor. They can't say exactly which role or that, because it's been so much, and I've been blessed because of it. But the key to the benefactor was Reve saying, you've got to find humanity in Lucifer at some point. Well, sure. Because Lucifer was once God's guy, and he made mistakes, and we all make mistakes, and we're all flawed, and maybe Lucifer will look at this film and think, well, maybe it is time to go back to the good side. As corny as that might sound, it's stuck in my brain. Well, look, man. I mean, if you can redeem Satan with right. this performance, <laughs> right. then you can have that trophy yeah, right yeah, over yeah, there. Yeah, that's, okay. right. well, that's, that's, that's one of my but, most beloved trophies, but and it's, it's yours. Not, and it's not Satan himself. It's people who are struggling. You know, we all do dumb stuff. We're all sinners. We all do things that we're not proud of every single day. That's part of being human. So don't point your fingers. Don't throw those rocks. Don't do it, because we're all doofuses at times. More than not. Profound. But the other thing about the script that I love is the idea... There's a butterfly effect in it, too. And the idea that a, a small shift, a small change in the course of a day can have enormous consequences. That's what started our podcast. That's what started the stories I used to write. I'm most interested in the inciting moments. Right. Whether it's in your career or in a good script. I mean, I love the fact that you grew up in a motel. I love the fact that you were I fold laundry with the best of them. I mean, I'm like a machine. Give me towels, buddy boy. I'm, I'm right through. A, we need a refrigerator in 219. No, my dad at my prom. Here comes, and I paid for it. I paid for my tux with the tails and the hat and the whole thing. Yeah. The limo pulls up. My date's getting into the car. As I'm about to put my butt into the car, my dad says, wait a minute, 219 needs a refrigerator. <laughs> You and there's Dad, my mom doing that exact me. same expression. He's like, honey, he's going to the prom. And I go and I bring the little portable refrigerator in Sit my tight, tux, honey. put it in. Now I'm schwitz and I get in the car. Bye, mom. Bye, Dad. <laughs> Classic, but yes. Do you remember your date? Jean Farley. She was one of my best friends in high school, and uh, we became friends You know, thereafter. It wasn't a, a romantic thing. It was just... Well, we not after buddies. the refrigerator, after no. The refrigerator, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was, but the whole Farley <laughs> family. Shower. <laughs> right. I loved that family. They were great people. I miss Hyannis. I miss Cape Cod. I miss everything. It's, uh, it's a What was spot. your first role on stage? Well, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I auditioned for, and there's always a fall play and the spring play. And yeah. the most I ever got was a tooth and a tree. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm better than this. I'm so much better than this. A tooth? I'm a tooth and a tree. 
I also had a, a bit of a lisp and dyslexia, which my mom yeah. would work on, and she was amazing. And finally, I got to high school, and they were auditioning for Your Good Man Charlie Brown. And Wait, Snoop, don't tell me. Snoopy. I was going to say Snoopy or Linus. Yep. Can't be Charlie Brown. It's no. too obvious. So the audition was coming. My mom, who's a good piano player, we rehearsed two songs on the piano. And I went into the audition, and I could care less if I got the part in art, which is still in my system now. I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you like what I'm doing. I'm doing this 100% selfishly for me. Mm -hmm. And this is how I start. You know, Oscar Wilde said everything is useless to the artist except the artist themselves. So you should be 100% selfish in your approach to painting and writing and drawing. And, sure. And part of it, acting with other people. You have to have such confidence in your ability that you don't care what other people think. And it's that freedom once you get there. Like, oh, this is awesome. You must first amuse yourself. You have to. So I amused myself very well that day because the director's like, um, that was incredible. Who are you? I'm like, Neil McDonough. He goes, where are you from? I'm like, I'm here. And he goes, how have I never seen you in any of the plays? I'm like, exactly. I know I'm good at this stuff, but I've never had a shot at it. He goes, well, you're going to be Snoopy. I'm like, thank you. And I'll never forget opening night. And there's my mom in the front row. And I just cranked it. And I got a standing ovation. And I was like, oh, this is that feeling I've always wanted to see what it was like when the audience is completely quiet, totally giving their attention to you, and you darn well better give everything back to them because you got to appreciate a good audience. And I got it immediately. I just understood that. And from then on in, I was like, I'm going to be the best actor that I can be. You want to hear something crazy? First play I ever saw, Painter's Mill theater in the round mm -hmm. you're a good man charlie brown no kidding i swear to god and this will freak you out because there's a moment snoopy has a song supper time supper time <laughs> overtime too but i just can't hold, hold a candle, candle to my supper time, time. that's terrific but no the one i'm thinking of yanks you through the emotions yes of a day. Hold on. It's, uh, it, name it, uh, it, that's it. Faithful friends always near me. Bring me bones. Right. Scratch Brush my ears. ears. Right, exactly. Little birds come to cheer <laughs> so me. Good. And listen to this, Chuck. Every day on my stomach with their sharp little claws which are usually cold and occasionally painful <laughs> and sometimes there are so many that I can hardly stand it. Rats! And then he goes into this whole... Mike Rowe coming out of nowhere, <laughs> but going I'm, I'm, yard. I'm telling you, I mean, he just Snoopy, went yard. Snoopy is peanuts. Totally. And he is in the same way... Look, the New Testament... Why do you think we only have beagles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we have a lab now. But we've been beagles forever. Snoopy's been everything. All the, you know, every always. gift is always Snoopy. You know, when I write love letters to Reve, it's Noopy. You know, I'm her Noopy, you know, and it's, Are you kidding uh, it's me? always been because Snoopy, it was such, if it weren't for Snoopy, there's no way I'd be here right now. No way. Not a chance. Unbelievable that you played Snoopy. Crazy. And you walked in here with those periwinkle pants and I had no idea what we were going to talk about. <laughs> These but babies, I, I would say you can take the boy out of Cape Cod. <laughs> However, I had a Harley years ago. <laughs> Not in those pants you didn't. In these pants! And people would laugh at me because, you know, my kids laugh at me because this is me, you know, wearing a white button-down shirt, but as dressed as I get. But I'm always in a polo shirt and khakis. Everywhere I go. And I used to ride my Harley in a polo shirt and khakis. And my kids are like, Dad, 
did you ever think of making like wearing jeans? I'm like, I don't have any. <laughs> you know, I wear them in movies because of the characters and all these westerns that I'm in now. It's wardrobe. And, 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 I, and I love wearing jeans, but I'm a khaki guy. I've always been a khaki guy, whether it's periwinkle, whether it's the Nantucket red or just regular khakis. It's just, I'm comfortable in it. And I don't really care so much what everyone thinks. Like, I'll leave the house sometimes and my daughter Clover laughing. Goes, Are you going out of the house like that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Don't you care what other people think? And, she, and before I answer, she's like, "Oh, that's right. You that's really right. don't. No, you don't." Which is, and then I said, "But that's because I'm still nine or ten years old in my brain. I'm still that little kid that never grew up until I look at the mirror." And then I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute. Okay, I've gotten older, but I'm still not growing up. I can't." So what a run you're having, man! Picking up <laughs> cigarette butts at three years old. Now you're going to go talk to my friend Adam Carolla later today. I am. So I mean. <sighs> Is this fun for you to, I mean, I, I'm having a great time in real time, but the weight of promoting a project, you know, I mean, you've been doing it now for so long. How do you keep this part of what you do from feeling like the bird's claws on Snoopy's belly that sends him into a tizzy? Each year, it seems like the press gets more time consuming for me. Well, what does that mean? It means I'm climbing that ladder. Mm -hmm. It means they're giving me the opportunity to tell stories that I've always wanted to do. Look, now I get to be a romantic lead in a film, in an action film, riding 2,000-pound bulls, starring opposite these other fantastic actors in The Last Rodeo. I get to do a movie called Homestead that's this post-apocalyptic show where I'm this you know, Dutton character. I'm kind of a Kevin Costner-ish type of character on this show with a cowboy hat. Or I've got the shift where I'm, you know, one of my most proudest performances. It's hard to put into words how appreciative I am for what he has given me and that I don't want to take any of it for granted. You pinch yourself from time to time? All the time. I sometimes will just stop and giggle at how blessed my life is to have five amazing kids, my most amazing wife, my best cheerleader, my biggest motivator, my biggest butt kicker my biggest love, my biggest everything, and all rolled into one human being that I get to call my wife. My favorite part of playing cards is when I pick them up, because you never know. <laughs> I mean, you never know. And every now and then, you look down, and you're like, oh, I, got, I got four aces. That never happens, but it happens. I feel like maybe that happened for you. You know, we joked earlier, and you know, people were saying, man, you're so successful in the last few years. I know why. It's because, well, two things. Giving up alcohol was a humongous thing. Then it gave me more time of, oh, I'm not at a bar. I've got much more free time. What do I do now? Hmm. And the review said, write that idea. Write something. You wake me up mm-hmm. at 2 o'clock in the morning. Honey, I got this great idea. She goes, write it down. And we go on for years. And finally she was like, okay, actually go write it down now. And yeah. then I wrote down Boone, the movie that I did, the first movie that I co-wrote. And then I came up with this other idea about this Western, the Wicked, just go write it, stop talking to me and start talking into a phone. And that's what I did. Yeah. And then I would voice dictate a script, basically, and send it to my writing partner, uh, Derek Presley. Uh, if everyone could say a prayer for Derek, he's sick right now, he's having a really hard time in the hospital, so please pray for my buddy. We did that, then I had another idea, then another idea, then another idea, and it just kept going. And, th- and the second part of it was, every New Year's I jump into water no matter where I am. Mm. It's generally ice cold. And this year, I was in Vancouver in our pool, which was pretty darn cold. And I sat in there and said, okay, Lord, I can't believe all the gifts that you give me. What can I do to repay you? And I heard him clear as day say, make entertainment for me. And in that pool, Mike, I was like 
I could feel just heat. I can see it like it was yesterday. This thing that just went through my system of calling me out to do better projects and to do more elevated stuff. And then INSP calls and said, we want you to do a, a, a Western called The Warrant. And then we did part two to The Warrant, which we just won all the festivals and stuff. It went, did really, really well. Uh, and Ravey and I helped produce that one. And then it just kept moving and kept going, all because giving up drinking, listening to him, and trying to do the right stuff. And there's a confidence that you get after a while that people are like, ooh, we want to be part of that. And Unity, this company that came to Reve and I about a year ago, said, we know what you're doing. We know your films are making a profit. How can we be part of it? We've got a couple hundred million dollar film fund. And so we started talking. I said, well, I'm almost finished with this one script. Tell me what you think. And we wrote it, the last rodeo. And I said, great, we're going to make it. And I'm like, okay, great. What else you got? We got this other film. And we showed it to one of their buddies, Jonathan Mostow, who directed Terminator 3 and U571. And then we had a great meeting. He goes, wow, I would love to direct this. And then we talked to Jim Caviezel about playing up. So all these things that are happening because of the belief that I have more in myself, because of the lack of the spare time that I used before for silliness has focused me into taking that spare time and putting it actually to fruition of positive, great things to do as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a whatever. And it's working. And it's pretty awesome to wake up every day and do it all with my best friend, Reve. If you asked me 20 years ago that this is where you're going to be in 20 years, I would have said you're full of it. There's just no way people are going to take my opinion that seriously. And now we have a TV series with my great friend Justin Falviot at Amblin that we're working on. And none of this stuff would have happened years ago. Four aces. But I think I might have five. You, you got Irish. the Joker. I'm Irish. That's you right. got the Joker. <laughs> no, look, man. So what's more important? Gratitude or delayed gratification? Oh, gratitude. Delayed gratitude. If you do anything but gratification, we all do things for gratification. When we do it's probably the wrong choice. It's for Coach, thanks for giving me the chance to step into that box with the bases loaded and having faith in me that I'm going to get a hit for you. Gratitude or work ethic? Wow. I don't think you'll never get the gratitude unless you have the work ethic. My dad and my mom pummeled me into having a great work ethic as a kid. And by doing so, you know, my dad always said, if they give you a dollar, give them $2 worth of effort. And I've always prided myself on going over and above in anything I do, whether I'm coaching the kids, whether I'm doing, you know, driving, whether I'm shopping for food for the kids. I always want to go over and above and get the right stuff, get the good stuff. And when it comes to acting, there's not a chance I'm going to mail something in knowing that someone might come to me, some old lady might say, I spent 15 bucks watching you stink it up in a movie. No, I can't. It would eat me. So work ethic or hope? Hope is positivity, isn't it? If you're positive about things, great things can happen. If you're not positive, I tell my kids in sports that if you positively believe that you can do it, there's a great probability that it will. If you think possibly that you're not going to make that shot, not <laughs> going to make that putt, not going to make that whatever, not going to make that dance move that my daughter London is just so incredible at, then you're not going to. Those are mind tricks. But I had to learn those mind tricks. You, you fake it till you make it as a young actor. And, you know, I, got, I can do this. I can do it. I can, I'm, I'm a, can you do 
are you a great swimmer? Yeah, I'm a phenomenal swimmer. When I got the Guardian, I said I was this awesome swimmer. I wasn't a great swimmer. I've got a big Irish head and I sink like an anvil. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work. Yep. You do have a big head. I do have a very big head. So I was doing Flags of Our Fathers at the time with Clint Eastwood up in Iceland. And I got, I heard that I got the part in, in the Guardian. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You can swim, right? Oh, I'm Cape God. I can, I can swim, dude. I can swim. Like, like a porpoise. <laughs> so I go home for a day, literally, and I'm on the plane going to Shreveport, Louisiana to do The Guardian with Kevin Costner. And I walk onto the set, which is at the Olympic-sized pool. And I'm the mm-hmm. tough, tough as nails, hard guy instructor. And there's all the guys, hey, that John, spinners on deck. And all of a sudden, all the, the guys are standing there waiting for me. And the technical advisors walk up to me who were Coast Guard guys themselves who were just, who could swim from forever. And they're looking at me and they're like, uh, and I'm in my swimsuit. And I said, what's the test? If I swim all the way, how far underwater is it till I can prove to everyone that I'm tough? He goes, well, you can make it all the way under Olympic pool from this end to that end. You prove everyone that you're tough. He goes, but, I'm like, what's the but? If you make it all the way and all the way back, it proves you're a coasty. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> all right. I hadn't been in a pool and I can't tell you how long. So <laughs> I dive in and I'm flying. I'm about halfway through. I'm like, oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. And I'm all, oh, oh I don't know if I got it. My, I, I, <laughs> and I get to the end and I, I don't know how to do a kick turn. So I got to the end underneath and I touched it and I kicked off. And at that point, I thought my heart was going to explode. Mm. But here comes that little kid who mm. is on stage, is in front of the mirror as Jim Palmer, is picking up the cigarette butts, developing that work ethic, knowing that God is on my side. And get that fridge over to 219. That, that's right. <laughs> and I'm going, I'm literally puking in my mouth as I'm going, but I'm not going to quit. There's no way. And I think I'm, I'm blacking out by the time I'm almost, about halfway through the second length. And I finally get to the end. It's still kind of like a black moment. I get out of the pool and I just stare at everyone. <laughs> and I walk off. Straight to the toilet. And I threw up for, I have no idea how long. Where'd Spinner go? Oh, he's gone yeah. for the day. Yeah. But no one knew. The Coasty knew. He knew exactly what I did. And it's that mental toughness of being the youngest of six kids that I don't know where it comes from, but I just, I like hanging out with that guy. It's a test and I enjoy it. Brother, this country likes hanging out with that guy because we see him in over a hundred films, more than a few of which are remote drops. Mm -hmm. Um, Shift is the most recent. Anything else? Because I've been very selfish and and I've kept you here and I know you got things to do. Just chatting for a bunch and getting to see you over the years and what you do and what you stand for, Mike. And it really is an honor to be on your show. That's... Dude, from you? Well, I think of the first time I saw Band of Brothers, to imagine sitting here with my old buddy who I've known for 42 years. I'm just so grateful for everything that happens in my life because we've all been to a spot that's not so fun. And we all get into tailspins in life. (laughs) And once you can figure out how to get out of that tailspin and still be really thankful for that tailspin and grateful for it, and know that there is hope out there that things can change with the way you believe in things and you know whether you're religious or not. You know, I'm a very religious person. But I'm a firm believer in God and what he has and I want to make him happy with everything that I do. Whether you're atheist or, or Taoist or Jewish or Muslim or whatever the case is, if you can figure out how to be a better person for humanity, that's where I'm at now. I'm just trying to figure out how to be 
as grateful for all the ups and downs in my life because there's going to be more ups. There's going to be more downs. It's being grateful for all of it. That's the journey. And gosh, I get to sit here and talk about it with you. That's pretty awesome. Imagine the New Testament without Judas. You can't. It's not a story. It's, it can't. It's nothing. It's what so true. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for everything Thanks. you've Thanks. done and all you're about to do. Go get shift. Were we clear on how to do it? Here's the thing, folks. It's called Google. What yeah. you do is you get on it. I'm so good at this stuff. You type shift, and then shift you'll know. Shiftmovie.ai. There we go. Shiftmovie.ai. Final, final thought. <laughs> the titles to these things are always quotes from our guests, and if you don't object, I think this one is called The Luckiest Man Alive. That's what I wrote. With yeah. Neil McDonough. I, yeah. I think it's, that probably encapsulates everything. You good with every, that? Everything to And your fancy four aces and your beautiful wife and your wife? five perfect kids. I've seen pictures. Yeah, I know. I know. All right, six aces. All right, enough. Enough. <laughs> Thank you, sir. If you like what you heard, and even if you don't, oh, won't you please, won't you please, pretty please, pretty please, subscribe. Well, I hate to beg and I hate to plead, but please, pretty freaking please, please subscribe.